I thought this was going to be very easy, but I feel a little strange. Today, I want to share some highlights of my long journey, both as witness and participant in the struggles of our denomination and of congregations, such as First Parish, to properly address and embody social justice and diversity. I also want to share the joy and internal power I experienced after the struggle to reclaim my own identity. Something that I have learned well is that both the difficult individual and communal work for equality and inclusiveness require flexibility to adopt new strategies and constant determination to stay the course. This work is done step by step, change by change, seeking through transformation always. I was born in Colombia, as many of you know, and wanting to give me the best education, my mother sent me to boarding schools with Catholic nuns. Unfortunately, they were products of a prejudiced patriarchal society and of a very, very conservative church. With the nuns and at home during vacations, I learned about good people, those like us, and of bad, strange people, those different from us and with whom we should not associate. In 1964, I accepted an invitation to come to the United States as an assistant visiting professor of demography at the University of California at Berkeley. Along with my personal belongings, I brought a bag of prejudices against strange others. This is a list of people I was even fearful of because they were different. As I share my list, I invite you to add or subtract from your own because I know you look very innocent, but I know better. Okay, who are these people that I fear? The Colombian Indians, who should be grateful to the conquistadores who brought them civilization and the true faith. The Jews punished to wander on earth for having crucified Jesus. The Protestant, they were a rarity. These were doomed people led astray from the one true religion walking on the path to you know where, hell. The blacks, a whole African continent was teeming with pagans whose salvation depended on the Catholic missionaries, and of course, on good little girls like me. The Turkish and the Polish immigrants who were sorry people selling textiles from door to door. And of course, the Yankees. Those pale, greedy, naive gringos trick, tricking us into accepting their outdated tractors and arms in exchange for our oil and other natural resources. We, in Latin America in general, don't distinguish between Yankees and gringos, so bear with me. I accepted the invitation to come here despite my distaste for the USA, 
because colleagues who had studied in Ivy League universities convinced me to grab this great opportunity. Can you imagine missing this chance? And thus, I arrived in San Francisco, and my first paradigm shift began. As I was picking up my bag to board an airport shuttle, the drive it, this real burly gringo came down from the, from the driver's seat and grabbed my bag and took it. And I immediately asked, how much? Smiling, he said, nothing, just a smile. I was in total shock. Did I land in the wrong country? <laughs> this big guy come to help me with my bag and ask me to smile? Several kinds acts later, and it hit me. One thing is the government and his policies, and another are the people. That was a big, big lesson. My father's ancestors were Spaniards. My mothers were Spaniards and indigenous from the Andes. In my country of birth, I grew up as a white person. Here in my adopted country, my birthplace and my color became the core or one of the paradigm shifts I had to undergo before regaining my true identity. That paradigm shift began one Sunday in 1991. A member of my congregation approached me saying, the Unitarian Universalist Association is very interested in knowing how many people of color we have already. Could you please fill this questionnaire and return it to me? Driving home that Sunday, my head was spinning as I started realizing that the person I thought I was all this time, no worries, was not the same person others thought I was. I was stunned. Next, I felt betrayed by my new faith. After having renounced Catholicism and having been in a spiritual exile for many years, I had found my true spiritual home in Unitarian Universalism. There, I was encouraged to get rid of my prejudices and to be proud being a woman. I was so happy in my Unitarian Universalist theological honeymoon, thinking, what freedom, no more pretensions, no more labels, just freedom of thought and action. And now, this church that, is, that had started showing me the devastating effects of racism, sexism, and other isms, this church was labeling me and as a person of color at that. It didn't take me long to start making petty comparisons between the color of my skin and that of others. I noticed that many of those considered whites were darker than I. I compare my education, my professional career, and my home with some of the whitest within and without my congregation, and kept wondering why on earth people thought that white skin alone made someone superior. In the seminary, I completed this paradigm shift. There, I became truly aware of the extent of racism in the world, in myself, and sadly, in our denomination as well. I understood the twofold effect that racism was having on me. On the one hand, remember my list? 
I was feeling both shame and pain realizing this ugly fact in my life. And I was very angry at the church, my family, and the society that had so corroded, corroded my humanity. On the other hand, now that I was aware of my new status as a person of color, I was feeling, feeling angry and humiliated. I no longer could minimize or ignore the fact that on several occasions my children and I have been discriminated against. The most hurtful instance when I wanted to buy a house with a Japanese garden, oh boy, was in love with that house that I just looked from the outside. But I couldn't even see it inside because we were Latinos. I became more and more convinced that classifying people according to skin color, birthplace, or ethnicity to put them in their place, so to speak, was not only evil, but genetically inaccurate. Fitzpatrick, the great sociologist and scholar of Puerto Rican life, remarked, in Puerto Rico, a drop of white blood makes a person white. In the United States, a drop of black blood makes a person black. He was, of course, referring to the one-drop rule, a tactic believed to be useful to strengthen segregation and the disenfranchisement of most blacks and many poor whites in the United States South from 1890 to 1910. Interestingly, before 1930, individuals of mixed European and African ancestry were usually labeled as mulatos, sometimes as black and sometimes as white, depending on appearance. What exact criterion, right? These things are so subjective. I myself have been asked if I am French, Greek, Italian, Brazilian, German, yes, German, <laughs> and even Californian. Last time I was asked, I was, they asked me if I was a Czechoslovakian, go figure. And yet, having been perceived as European or as a light Latina, was detrimental when I was in search under the Diversity of Ministry Initiative. After having been told that I was one of the two finalists, and a very good candidate, I was asked, how can we choose you when the congregation is expecting a minister of color? Right then and there, I understood that I was facing another paradigm shift. Now that I was comfortable enough as a person of color, I had to accept that others didn't see me as such, at least not totally. Well, welcome to the growing class of those who are perceived as neither this nor that. Case in point, the Neoricans, I was married to one, and when, he, when we went to Puerto Rico, they said, oh, you're a gringo, you're not, you not one of us. But here in the United States, of course, he was not a white person. He was, he was a, a Puerto Rican. And so that happens with many Mexican-Americans and many children from mixed marriages, which is very, very hard to, to have because when they, for example, we have, like, lately we had this uh, workshop, and the first thing that people do is people of color in this room and the white people in the other. And here we are, son in the center saying, what if I dare to go to the white people? What they are going to say? You here? Get out. And yet, you don't feel that you totally belong with uh, the others. So where do you stand? It's very difficult. So we have to really, really think 
about this new growing class of people that are not here, not there, not considered this, according to, you know, the way you look that day, that's how you are classified. The issue of blood purity was a confusing aspect of my racial paradigm shift. In Colombia, I had learned that my blood was a rich mixture of many bloods, God, Visigoth, Roman, Arabic, and indigenous. I always felt proud and thankful for being so richly endowed, really and truly, I felt, oh my God. But here, such richness made my blood impure and a lesser of a person of me. Just think for a moment how ignorant it is to ascribe inferiority of superiority to entire continents based on blood purity or skin color. How many people in the United States, in New England, for example, can with absolute certainty say that they are pure, pure white, that in their blood they don't have the least trace of Native American, black, Asian, Hispanic, or any other ethnicity whose blood is labeled blood of color? It has been very difficult for me not to give into despair, realizing both how insidious and damaging racism is and how easily, like destructive viruses, we transmit prejudices of all kinds from childhood on, from generation to generation. But there is hope. For many years now, our denomination has been increasingly making efforts to become multiculturally savvy and racially diverse. An earlier unique example of commitment in this regard was the First Unitarian Church of San Jose. Responding to the challenge of the janitor, Edgar, who was the janitor, a refugee from El Salvador, he said to the senior minister, Lindy, you are so gung-ho on, on social justice. You march with us, you give us refuge, you give us shelter, you go to the courts and advocate for us. What about your religion? Don't you think that we can understand and be, and be able to, to belong in your church? And she said, but I don't speak in, uh, Spanish. And he said, go and learn it. And so she did. She went to Mexico and learned Spanish. And soon after that, I was hired there to be the full-time minister in Spanish. It was a great experiment, a great project. And um, one of the gifts from that period is this hymnal that you use today. An invaluable gift for me from that period also was to regain my true identity as a child of the universe, called to be a bridge between cultures, generations, ethnicities, religions, and other traditional dividers. Another gift to me was the realization that anti-racism work is hard work for those try, trying to be inclusive and for those who wanted to be included. Seeing the other as inferior, as the cause of one's guilt, or as one's burden prevents true friendship and acceptance. Seeing the other as the oppressor or as the cause of one's feelings of inferiority and hopelessness prevents healthy relationships as well. This is how Martin Luther King Jr. saw the main roots of the fear distancing people. He said, people don't get along because they fear each other. People fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not properly communicated with each other. 
another giant of integration, the Belgian Catholic Cardinal Mercier, wrote what is known as his testament. In this, he expressed the necessary steps to eliminate fear and to attain union thus. In order to unite with one another, we must love one another. In order to love one another, we must know one another. In order to know one another, we must go and meet one another. And the Unitarian minister, William Ellery Channing, called the father of liberal religion in America, said to Jared Sparks in his ordination sermon in 1819, if any light can pierce and scatter the clouds of prejudice, is that of pure example. My brother, may your life preach more loudly than your lips. Yes, may our lives preach more loudly than our lips. For us, Unitarian Universalists, the best way to eliminate barriers to love and the scourge of racism is to embody our faith principles. An easy task? Of course not. But try, we must. The practice of our first principle, which is, somebody remembers the first principle? The inherent worth and dignity of every person. To affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person will lead us to learn the appropriate means to properly communicate with each other. The practice of our fourth principle, which is the free and responsible search for truth. I mean, don't be shy, you are Unitarian Universalist. Well, to affirm and promote a responsible search for truth and meaning will lead us to educate ourselves about the cultures and customs of those we fear because they are different and to honor their values and dreams. To attain true justice and integration, we need to move beyond our impersonal social justice to a personal embodiment of fairness and compassion. We need to practice spiritual justice. This is very important, spiritual justice, and let social justice be its fruit. And what could be more spiritually just than to share our precious faith with the thousands that right now are create, creating a spiritual home such as ours? Do you remember your excitement finding this faith and this spiritual home? We have had several testimonials of how amazing it is to finally find a home like ours and belong. Then why, to deny, why then deny the same to others just because we consider them different and therefore not worthy of our faith? What, what would it take for us to go and meet the strange other face to face, heart to heart? Let us individually and collectively take up the challenge of breaking all barriers and let us open our doors to our hurting world for the sake of our own salvation as a religious denomination and as a congregation. Let us expand our generosity beyond our denomination. But let us do it by engaging our whole being in a way that is personal, vibrant, and fearless. Let us accept Sandra Maria Esteves' invitation and let us weave as a song for our bodies to sing, a song of many threads, 
that will dance with the colors of our people and cover us with the warmth of peace. Amen and blessed be.